Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Shabbat Pesach, which is the Sabbath during the days of Passover, uh, days of unleavened bread. And one of the key passages that we had taken a look at, we looked at it on the first day of unleavened bread from 1 Corinthians 5, 7. It says, you know, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has also been sacrificed. And as we are looking at here, that this connection here between the Messiah and unleavening and also the Passover and its original meaning of blocking the destroyer that was coming through Egypt, coming through Mitzrayim, that was going to go deal with the gods of Egypt to bring freedom to Israel and to all those who grafted themselves in, who went along with Israel out of the house of bondage into freedom. So we looked at here in passages from Exodus 33 and going into 34 and Leviticus 23 with the passage there of Passover unleavened bread and also these days that would be going out from Passover unleavened bread and the first fruits on to Pentecost or Shavuot. And we also looked at Ezekiel 37 with the prophecy of the Valley of Dry Bones, as it's called. And then we saw in Matthew 27, there going through 28 and the end of that particular gospel there, the crucifixion and the burial and resurrection of Yeshua and closing things out here with the context of this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That it's a very interesting and curious thing that their sense of tolerating this in the midst of their congregation there in Corinth was a part and likened to the puffing up of leaven within yourself with a spiritual boasting of your uh, tolerance of a particular situation. So with that, one of the things to look at first is the passage there in Exodus uh, 33, and uh, starting in verse 12 and going through 34, 26. And really, you could say the punchline of that particular passage is the section where it's talking about, show me your glory. Show me your glory. That is, show me your heaviness. What makes you substantial? What makes you heavier and more substantial than anything else on this planet? And especially, as it says, if you don't go with us, we can't go. And the people were saying, because that whole reason of the Lord traveling with them and being in their midst was the essence of what the nation was. It wasn't just because you had a fancy tent or you have fancy furniture that goes in the tent or fancy clothes on the people who work in the tent. It was because of who traveled among them which is key to what you see with the prophecy of the Valley of Dry Bones. So starting first off here with this passage in Exodus 33 and 34. Now we covered this just a while back there in the Torah passage called uh, Kitisa, which is the 21st of the Torah readings in the cycle. So you can find that there where we tackled this at hello.info slash p21, where we tackled this particular passage. But the context of it is to remember that it goes all the way back to the beginning of the book of Exodus and you know, really going back into Genesis with the descent down into Egypt that really starts in Genesis chapter 12 with the calling out of Abraham. But that's in, especially in, in the context of Israel's Exodus, that was, you know, the Lord redeemed Israel out of this house of bondage, out of Mitzrayim, out of Egypt and then through the sea. So out of the house of bondage, then through the sea. 
which cut off their pursuers who was pursuing after them. And then to Sinai. So you have these stages out of the house of bondage, through the sea, to the mountain. And one of the aspects that we look at is for us, and we drive this home many times each year in this season, is that for us, this is, is a pattern, a type for our own departure from our own house of bondage. We get out. And a part of what we saw on the first day of unleavened bread is matzah in one sense is a sign of get out fast. Get out. Don't drag your house of bondage with you. Don't drag it with you. And also, when you get out, there will be your old life will be pursuing you. Your old life will be pursuing you. So you need to go through the sea. And your old life needs to, quote, die in the sea and, quote, be reborn on the other side of the sea so that your old life does not follow you through the sea. Your old life is, gets consumed in the sea. And then when you're out the other side, then you're like, okay, now what? Well, then you are delivered, led to the mountain. And at the mountain is where you have this encounter with the one who delivered you. The one who delivered you is now giving you a testimony, the tablets of the testimony. The tablets with the 10 words, the 10 commandments on them are called the tablets of the testimony. The pattern that is shown Moshe up on the mountain is called the tent of the testimony. It is all a testimony, a witness of who the Lord is with this. So in this passage that we're looking at here, when he's saying, show me your glory, who is it who is traveling with us? Is this just a vestige that we have of yesteryear, a fables, cleverly told tales, as the Apostle Paul calls it? No, we're, that's not what we're following. We're not following some clever, cleverly crafted tale or myth. No, this is the presence of the creator of heaven and earth who is traveling with us. So thus, when you see that in the midst of this encounter at the mountain, Moshe goes up on the mountain and he's gone. He's gone for 40 days. And they're wondering, well, we have no idea what happened to him. And that's in the passage that we see in the Torah portion of Kitisa that we don't know what happened to him. So in, Gen in Exodus 32, then they're like, well, we will do what we know. We know, we know our old way of life. And the old way of life back there in Egypt, back in Mitzrayim, includes what? Idols, deities that you can see. And we know how that whole thing goes. So we'll just take what we know and kind of bolt it onto this kind of new thing that we know about the one who let it out and say, okay, here is the one who took us out of Mitzrayim and make a representation of that at the base of the mountain where you're actually having a personal encounter and testimony from that. So do you want the cheap copy at the base of the mountain or do you want the the personal relationship with the one on the mountain. And we saw that if you roll this back even to one, a couple passages before that, to uh, the Torah passage Yitro with Exodus chapter 20, and they go and they're having this encounter at the mountain, but they're like, ah, Moshe, you speak to him. He's scary. We don't want that. Because unlike the deities of Mitzrayim, that spoke through their, quote, prophets, their priests, just like any other deities that you'll encounter across all the different belief systems on the planet. The deity is whatever your guru or your priest says it is. But here at the mountain, they're hearing the thunder and the voices. 
So it's not just Moshe telling you this. This is now you're having a direct encounter with it. And, that's, and that is scary. You know, if you've ever, um, even in just the, the small little sense of things, we can say you um, know of a celebrity, you, you read about a celebrity or some sort of famous figure or something like that. You see pictures of them. You see video of them. Okay, that's great. But then you're like there, and there is that famous person in front of you. Now, we all have varying degrees of uh, being fangirl, being in awe and in a sense of being in the presence of someone who's famous to varying degrees of that. Well, how much more is that in when you're dealing with the creator of heaven and earth? This is not just what some guru or priest is telling you about it. This is a direct encounter with the creator of heaven and earth, the one who broke the back of your house of bondage, the one who opened up the sea and you walk through it, the one who gave you water out of a rock, that one you're now having a direct encounter with. So after the golden calf, and then you have the judgment that follows after that, but even before the judgment, Moshe is warned, hey, the people you, you brought out are going off the rails down there. And that was about ready for the smite button at that point. But Moshe interceded for them, interceded for them. Then he goes down the mountain, breaks the tablets of the testimony. Then what does he say to them? He says, I'm going back up the mountain to intercede, intercede for you. So that's a, a very interesting thing. He interceded before he even came down. Then he interceded again, went back up for them. And then what we read here right now is the second intercession after he had gone through the judgment for those ringleaders up to a certain degree, because his own brother was a ringleader, you could say, sort of, of this. Yes, uh, Sean, you have a comment or a question here? I just, I love it how patient and long-suffering Abba is. He counts to 10 versus a human that would count to three and then whoop your butt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's, it's an interesting encounter because what, what you see in a bit of the subtext here is an almost invitation to intercession. It's like, okay, this judgment is coming down. Step out of the way, Moshe, and let me just lay waste. But Moshe steps up and says, hey, keep it all on me, not on them. So thus, interceding before he even goes down, delivers judgment, then comes back up and intercedes again. But in this intercession, he's like, and you saw in the passage that we were reading, that this intercession would include, very interestingly, a pattern of what was to come. It's like, okay, my presence will go with you, but it will be via a messenger, the angel of the Lord. That messenger would be going for you. So it would be a, a figure, a precursor, a looking forward to what would be coming, that there would be a one a messenger from heaven who would be coming, the one who came down from heaven, would be the one that would be in their midst, bringing the presence of the Lord along. So thus we have that prefiguring here. So what we see in intercessors, and we looked at this in back when we were going through the passage in Exodus chapter 32. So we talked about this in that key Tisa passage that there's the parallels between the intercessors that we had at these really pivotal moments in history. During the flood, you had Noah, whose name is a derivative of the Hebrew word for rest, to rest, to find a place of peace and calm, which is a very interesting thing because he was the vehicle who built this place that would be 
a place of rest in the midst of the tempest that was going on all around the earth outside of that boat. Outside of the ark, there was no rest, but inside there was rest. There would be deliverance in there. So what we see in the, the combinations of these particular, these particular intercessors, Noah, he was the one that lived among the Shakat, the Shakat people, the corrupt people. And Moshe, in the sense, was saying in Exodus 32 to these people that you, that your people have shakat or corrupted themselves. And you see that again in the Gospels, in Matthew 12 and Luke 11 and Luke 18, about this wicked generation that Messiah was in. That he was giving them, he says, there will be no sign given to this generation except to the sign of Yonah, the sign of Jonah. That would be the sign that would be given. And when you roll back the tape and look at what that sign was, <laughs> that sign of Yonah to Nineveh, remember this is a capital nation of <laughs> the empire outside of Israel, huge city outside of Israel, the home place of terrible tyrants. And the prophet goes in there, and as he's walking across, you know, they know from history that it was a huge city, huge metropolis area of Nineveh at that time. And he said, what? You've got a chance now, if you repent, uh, we'll give you 30 days and it's not a money-back guarantee, but you might get your life back at the end of it. No. It's like 30 days and you're toast. 30 days and the city will be flipped over, overturned. And people have noted that the Hebrew word there for overturned is a bit vague. It just means it'll be turned over. Now, you can load that with whatever you think is going to happen. It could be taken to mean destroyed. It could be taken to mean turned over like someone turns over dirt with a shovel and in that the people of Nineveh made their choice they repented and showed signs of repentance kind of similar reminding you of Yohanan the baptizer there telling the people who were coming to him show signs show fruits of repentance the people of Nineveh were showing that that they put on sackcloth and ashes, a sign of utter humility and debasing of yourself, even so much so that they were doing that to their animals too, just to say, uh, we are turning back from it. So, you, oh, yes, uh, Christine, uh, go ahead, please. I don't want to um, deviate or distract, but also at Shavuot, when Peter was saying, Yes. Save yourselves from this corrupt, <laughs> corrupt generation. generation. Yes. Yes. Uh, Sean, uh, go ahead, please. Uh, I just see a, a couple different connecting dots here that is just beautiful imagery. You know, we, we have Moshe. He's lived in Egypt. He's very well knowledge, knowledgeable about all the different gods there. Mm -hmm. So for him to come back down and see this happening, <laughs> it's frustrating, yeah, but not that surprising. Mm. The bulls of Bashan are still at the base where the crater is. Just like they showed up again and in Psalms and then again at the foot of the cross. Yeah. Nothing new under the sun. But to yeah. be able to see past those spirits and to say, forgive them from the no, not what they do. Love your enemies. It's just Moses, Moses showed that by going back up again. Yeah. You know, you just forget it, man. You didn't get it the first time. Did you not just see what we went through? Yeah. What the 10 gods that we've grown up with, just boom, in the moment, gone. Yeah. And you didn't get it, but bless he got it. Yeah. That amount of mercy in the midst of just an unbelievable affront to the face of the one who took you out. I mean, you think about our encounters that we remember those painful memories we have of uh, our parents or people uh, that have helped us out and helped us and helped us and helped us and we've done things to hurt them or to, to make it seem like what they've done is just not appreciated not appreciated 
So as we see some other parallels here between Noah, Moshe, and Yeshua, there is the plan to destroy in the time of Noah. And Moshe's time, God calls his creation, you know, your people who you brought up from the land of Mitzrayim. Very interesting. This is why you have that invitation to intercede. And this is a part of that invitation. Your people who you brought up, well, did Moshe do that? Uh, he, was, he was had to be, um, you could say, strong-armed back into doing this job. So, and you see in Yeshua's day that on the day of the Lord, that sadly he is going to, and for some cases, have to spit out of his mouth those that don't want to be full in. And those are those lukewarm that encountered there with the congregation of Laodicea. Either hot, okay, they're on fire for the Lord. Cold, okay, you can tell what really the, their choice is made. But lukewarm, it's like you're sort of, it is a mixture, right, of the hot and the cold. That's where you get that lukewarm water. Or, you know, the other way is that it was hot originally and it's been left to do what? Cool off. To lose its heat over time. Now, as we go on even further and close out these comparisons here, that Noah goes into an ark and really as the judgment was coming down on the world around him. That place in the ark would be the place of rest. Outside the ark, no rest. And in Moshe's time, he was freed from evil <laughs> at his birth there, put into a basket, which is, is the same word in Hebrew, the basket he was put in, as the ark that Noah was in. So it's very interesting that Moshe does not leave the Lord alone to pursue this judgment. And he's like, no. Stop. Take it. Put your wrath that you have for these people on me. Blot me out of your book. And you see in Yeshua, the passages there in Hebrews 1 through 10, the chapters there, that he being the ultimate high priest. And as we, we go through and we hit on into the book of Numbers, we'll see it again where there was a plague that broke out among the people. And Aharon, the high priest, his instruction was to what? Grab the censer. Grab the censer there. And the censer is, what does it hold? Incense, where does that come from? Yes, it comes from the altar of incense, right there in front of the divider, divider of the most holy place and the holy place. And you see in, in the book of Revelation there, that altar of incense is talked about like the prayers of the saints, the prayers of the holy ones, that that is going up like incense. And that was on the Day of Atonement that the cloud of incense from that altar was to shield, to be a shield for the high priest going into the presence, going into where the ark was in the most holy place. So thus you see that Yeshua is interceding in the midst of the people, in the midst of the people. And that's being something that is in place and in time, whether the tabernacle is in business, whether the open for business sign is open, and whether it's lit or not. And there is times in Israel's history that the tabernacle and the temple were not in operation, that it was a time of ichavod or abomination of desolation, or two different terms for that, where the glory had departed. So thus, when you see in this passage that we get to in Exodus 33-34, and 34 verses 6 through 7, where you see the name of the Lord, the reputation of the Lord, the weight of the Lord, the kavod of the Lord being expressed. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate. Rahum. Rahum 
one of the things that you have with compassion is racham, the derivative word from it to hold together, is also the Hebrew word that's used for womb, for the womb for a child. So that is when you get that sense of compassion, that is what you're like a mother to their baby is thus the Lord to people of God. So the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, and that's uh, Hunan. Gracious, meaning we talk about this being a sense of also like anointing that someone is had the oil poured, poured over them, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. And that's interestingly combination there of loving kindness and truth. Because loving kindness, chesed, is, could also be translated as loyalty. Loyalty, devotion, and truth or emet. So one of the interesting things that you see is something the Apostle Paul touches on in one of his letters. He's talking to the congregation at Corinth, and he says, he lists a whole long list of reprehensible behaviors. And he says, that's who you were, but that's not who you are. You are different. Yes, Alex, uh, uh, go ahead, please. Prophets always really get me going with yes. the Ezekiel thing with the bones. Yes. And then I remember last week. So you have with, a bone to pick with that, yes. Yes, I do. Oh, okay, great. What is it all about these bones? And then, <laughs> and then uh, Jeremiah last week yes. uh, also. Um, so uh, he said, just listen to me. When I brought you out, he, they jumped back to, hey, let's get the physical bones thing going. So they, they started with the physical stuff again and with those Tophets and the, the Valley of Slaughter and all that stuff. Yes. So they, they did like to get back to the old stuff pretty quickly. And, uh, but I guess um, the bones are real important, too. Yes. Because um, they're going to come back. I'm not sure about all those babies' bones or the ones who were sacrificed to Moloch, but where they come in, yeah. but uh, the ones that were in the valley... Um, those were coming back to life. Not sure about the rest of them. Yeah, they were well, sacrificed for other reasons. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a moment, but I'm cool. glad, you, glad you brought that up. And one of the things, and I guess in a sense that you just mentioned, is another thing that the Lord says here about his glory, his name, that he also uh, Keeps loving kindness, the chesed, for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. There you go. That's some prefiguring there of what would become the great coverings, the three coverings of the Day of Atonement, of sins, iniquity, and transgression. But yet he goes on and says, He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generations. You know, will you stop your family, um, your family descent? Will you stop your family descent or not? Or will you turn it around? Will you break the chain? For example, of Ruth, of Rahab, they broke the chain of the cultures that they were in. They said, the cultures that we are going in, um, we don't want to go in that particular direction anymore. Uh, yes, Christine, go ahead. Also, the woman at the well. Yes, the woman at the well. She was breaking from a sense of a tradition of those, because the Samaritans were in a sense, cut off. They had cut themselves off, and they were also cut off from the congregation because of just the circumstance of the exiles and the, the um, hereditary mixing of peoples that were brought into the land as others were carted off into exile, that you had a mixing of the cultures because 
in uh, one of the things that a number of nations learned pretty quickly is that when you conquer them, people have allegiance to their ancestral areas and their ancestral families. So a lot of despots learned, well, how you break that is you just move them. You move them so they lose all context of where they're from and all context of their family roots, etc. You just, yes, you move people around constantly. Yeah. Yes, well, the one thing about moving around and forgetting where you are is that if you want to stay in touch with what matters of your particular heritage because you know we bring up some examples from the bible of the samaritan woman or rahab or ruth who decided that they would cut ties with their former way of life and they would ally themselves with something new a new nation a new leader that would go with them so what we see here is that this by no means would leave the guilty unpunished. So as Alex was talking about with the, <laughs> the Valley of Ginnom, which was just <clears throat> reprehensible things were happening there with the passing the children through the fire to various deities, whether it be Molech or some of the others that popped up over time. One of the things that in breaking the the cycle that we have with our nations around us is what is it that we carry in with us when we go from place to place, like Rose was talking about. Do we take the baggage of where we were before or do we take with us the things that are truly enduring? For example, when uh, the prophet Daniel was carried off into captivity. When the prophet Ezekiel carried off into captivity, what did they carry with them? They took God with them. The prayer was toward where? And with that physical gesture of praying toward Jerusalem, they were saying where their devotion, where their heritage actually came from no matter where they physically were in any particular place. Our citizenship is in heaven, yes, not here on earth, incorrect. So thus, when you see the, the name for the people uh, that the Lord is calling, an example there in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, in verse 10, where you get this example of some characteristics of what happens when the Spirit of God is actually filling us up, that we are given a new spirit within us, just like as we'll get to here shortly in Ezekiel 37, that this, these revived bones that were given new life would have a new spirit, a new breath that would fill up in them. And it talks here in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, that love, and again, this love is not lovey-doveyness, eros sort of love. This is agape, the more selfless, which is translated, I guess a good translation from the KJV on that one is charity, because that gets more towards the sense of agape. So love is patient, and love is kind, and is not jealous. It does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. And then also, uh, the passage here from 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. The sorrow of the world produces death. 
So in those two passages that are from 1 Corinthians 13 and 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we see there that this, the type of charity, the type of chesed that is from heaven is one that is not seeking its own. Not seeking its own. And we see that exemplified in the pattern of Moshe there on the mountain interceding for the people. And we see that also in the Messiah interceding for the people as the high priest. So then, going to Alex's favorite place there with the, with the dry bones. Ezekiel 37 verses 1 through 14. And this picture of the now and the not yet of prophecy that we've talked about here recently, the now and the not yet of prophecy, that there would be a now, so to speak, for Ezekiel, because after that 70 years of exile, there would start to be a return of the Babylonian exile. There would be a return but it would start to be a return because there would be still some that did not return at that particular point. But when you look at the context of the book of Ezekiel, it was written to people who were in exile for a very specific reason. And the heart of the people, as was shown in the earlier chapters of Ezekiel, the heart was full of darkness. They had turned the things of the Lord into something that was just hideous. This was to be the land of promise, the land of rest, that they were going to enter the rest of the Lord. But the ones who were tasked with teaching the people, leading the people, getting them closer, because one of the things of the priesthood with the tabernacle, with the temple, was to take people closer to God. But what ended up happening? You had a number of generations of the priesthood that did quite the opposite. You see, during the time of, uh, during the, time of the high priesthood of uh, Eli, that he his sons became quite reprehensible and their behavior at the, the tabernacle at that point was terrible so much so and they were their behavior with the women that would come there with trying to get closer to god that people didn't want to go there anymore so that the people who were supposed to be getting people closer to god became those that drove people away from God. And that continued on then when you had the temple and you had some good kings and they dealt with issues to keep the mixing of other sorts of deities in with the worship of God. They got that out, but then others would come after them. Other kings, other priests would come in after them and drag it all right back in again or worse, back in again. To the point where you see that what's revealed in the book of Ezekiel, where the servants of God are actually have their backs to God and facing away, facing towards the sun, rather than facing and serving the one who made the sun, who made the stars, who made the moon. Now, one of the things then that's the tabernacle, the temple, was supposed to bring people closer to the creator of life. Back to the time that's told about in the garden where you would want to be drawn to the tree of life. But rather what they were doing was distracting people off to the tree of knowledge of good and bad. How so? By dragging in other deities into the worship of God, you are now saying that you don't need the tree of life who the creator made. You can go to name your deity because they'll have 
that life too. You'll get the knowledge of good and bad from that deity or that deity or mix them all together and have yourself an even better smoothie. Just suck it all down because uh, what is more is better. So yes, just mix them all together to a nice Slurpee. But... Us, uh, but one of the the issues is is by doing that, um, just sadly, you'll see some people will try to um, what out relevant the quote relevant world because they'll say, well, the worship of God is not relevant in the world, and you're right, it isn't relevant in the world, in the sense that the world sees only the way that things go with the tree of knowledge of good and bad because that's where the world eats from it thinks it's getting all kinds of knowledge of good and bad but the problem is is that what ends up happening you keep spiraling further and further away things just don't go well you see in in earth's history that there is a dominance of the weak dominance of the weak by the strong that is a course of all of human history those who have power will exude power and stomp down and crush those who don't have power and you see that that is the will of things from the very beginning that is the knowledge of good and bad and you think, well, and you see it explored in the uh, book of Ecclesiastes, that it seems like the wisdom of the world that the strong will dominate the, the weak and that those with power will dominate the innocent. Because it works, right? Until someone with a bigger stick comes along, so to speak, and beats down the one who took the power before. Yes, beats down the other people and takes their power from them. So thus you're faced with this particular problem when you try to out-relevant the world by taking all these things, mixing them in together, you miss where the source of life actually comes from. You despise the ways of life which is what you see earlier on in the book of Ezekiel, is that you are actually despising the ways of the Lord. Yes, Rose, go ahead, Well, please. when you speak of history and trees, you know, all the way back in Deuteronomy, eight, uh, Deuteronomy 16, 21, it says, you shall not plant a grove of any trees near onto the altar of the Lord. Uh, so, I mean, they were doing that way back uh, in Deuteronomy here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and the, and the they were getting away from the tree of life, and and you know planting their own grove of trees to do their own things with those trees. Yeah, and throughout time, people have looked to to trees as being a symbol of life and wisdom and longevity. I mean, we we do it today in you know, when when you cut down like a redwood tree, and you see its growth rings across that. And you start scoping out how much history that tree has been around. And it's been around through hundreds, even over a thousand years it's been around. Some even thousands of years they've been around. So you start seeing these things as being um, a source of life, a source of longevity. Um, Alex over here, you got a comment or, or a question. Keep, you know, keep coming they, back to you bones. know the rules are coming down, but they turn to the cow bones. Yes, but uh, fortunately, Yeshua, in another way of looking at it, he he sac he was a human sacrifice once. Yes, uh, but uh, the the Tophets in Carthage, the cemetery for that's only children, was six hundred years. So they had a cemetery going yes. for six hundred years as babies only. Yes, uh, Carthage. Yes. Carthage, North Africa, where the yeah, Tyrians set up before the Romans blew them up. Yes. 
Yeah, because the, the fertility cults have immense power. And actually, trees are a part of the fertility cults and uh, factor in there. Yes. I have a question. Um, when you were asking about what did Daniel take with them yes. you know, out of the land, um, do, do the commandments and the statutes stay with us? Or is it just, yeah, did they take the commandments with them? Indeed. Because so it's still because, the light in the lamp, right? Yeah, because one of the things when you're saying, um, love the Lord, which Lord? Somebody's version of the Lord? So you see examples in Israel's history, for example, when they um, came across, <laughs> can you believe they lost um, books of the law in the temple? And they found it. And then they read it. I mean, can you imagine that you're just like going by people's hearsay, what people thought that the law said, and then to actually hear it. You know, for, for example, I don't know if you've ever encountered a thing where you've heard people say, um, come up with some sort of version of history, like what the, for example, the, the Declaration of Independence. They'll get, get some egghead on TV going on and on and on about what the Declaration of Independence says. Then you actually read it, and you're like, wow, really? And because that is what the experience is. You've got someone's ideas of what the thing says, but then you actually read it yourself, and you hear it, and you say, now you are getting close to the one who wrote it. So that is, that is a picture that we, that's why, um, one of the important lessons that we have when we read each day, uh, each Shabbat day with the Shema, and that is about writing these onto the doorposts of your house. Why? Just to make a nice ornament? But it is to say that this is where the, you could say, the boundaries of the house, what they are actually built upon, what is guarding the gates of the house and what that is actually based on. You know, I bring up the illustration that we have of both not only the Declaration of Independence, but also the Constitution, that we can actually go down to the archives and actually take a look at that. And you can see one of the actual copies of it that goes way, way, way back to see, okay, this is what this country ostensibly was based on. Now, we can say, well, it's gone far, far, far away from that. But then we then have an experience just like that generation of Israel when they found the book of the law and then had a public reading of it to go, wait a minute, that, that's not anything like what's going on here today. How did that happen? Yes, cause them, cause them to repent. And a very similar thing uh, came out when um, Peter's sermon there and recorded in Acts chapter 2 to have it laid out for them to say, this is what Israel's history is, and this is what Israel's history is pointing toward with the Messiah. And then you have the Messiah show up in a form that you perhaps weren't expecting. Then you said, no, we don't want to go that way so then it went down to the point where even the messiah went the way of the prophets but this particular messiah was not like the prophets in that the power of heaven brought this messiah up so thus when we when we look at this <laughs> accounts that we have in, in Ezekiel 37. This promise that was first started with Abraham, recorded there in Genesis 12 and moving forward, that this would not die just because you had particular generations of Israel who were unfaithful to the promise. Because the promise was that this would continue for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Not because, like when you get into um, the chapter just before this, 
chapter 36 of Ezekiel, that this would not happen because of how holy you were, Israel, or how uh, devoted you were. No, this would sadly even happen in spite of you because of the promises that were made to make this happen, that this Israel would be a vehicle for the blessing of all the nations, as it was prophesied to Abraham that through him all the nations would be blessed and that through him would come the family, the family of Yaakov to Israel to the 12 sons and that that would be something that would go out into all the earth. So that we see that when humanity were far off from the presence of God, they were called near by the ultimate korban, the ultimate thing that approaches the ultimate offering. And we melt when we move from the realm of death to the kingdom of God by the Messiah. And a couple of key passages we see in this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, here starting out. And you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love which he, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Messiah Yeshua. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Messiah Yeshua for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So, that's right, created beforehand so that we would walk in them, creating the path and saying, okay, you're now free, you're a new person, here's the way to walk. Go on into it. <laughs> That's right. And continuing on in verse 9 of uh, Colossians 2. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Mashiach, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross. So thus, when you see this in the context of it, and everyone asks you, well, what is this referring to about the certificate of debt to, consisting of decrees against us? I mean, we've already addressed it up here earlier at the beginning of this passage. You were dead in your trespasses and your sin. You were condemned already, absolutely condemned. There was no hope for you whatsoever. But no, that was canceled out, that certificate of debt that was against you, and that was nailed to the cross. So that just like we go through the sea and out the other side, we go from death into life out the other side. And that which was pursuing us, that which was against us, that was pursuing us to death, that 
we have been freed from because that old part of us is on the other shore of the sea and the new part of us is on the other part of the sea rises with the messiah and where do we go to the mountain to get the testimony of the lord so thus we close things out here with the passage we were looking at in matthew 27 and 28 each of us has a bc history too before christ before the messiah there was a history that we have but we also have an ad in the year of our lord in the year of our lord when he went to the cross went to the grave and then came up from the grave and that new self that we have in the eyes of god now this is we were talking about this during our roman study and it's very very difficult for us to sometimes get our hands around this that God actually declares us not guilty because we don't think that we are not guilty. But we are declared not guilty. We are declared not guilty because the part of the new covenant prophecy is that he will forgive, send away our iniquities and remember them no more. So remember no more means they are not counted against us anymore. They are not considered to be a part of us. So one of the things that we see is that heaven has saved us from heaven's destroyer. Talk about the wrath of God poured out. Well, you see that in the 10th plague. The wrath of God was poured out on Mitzrayim, on Egypt. But the blood of the Pesach blocked the destroyer. Heaven sent the destroyer. Heaven sent the savior, the redeemer, the blocker of the destroyer, the lamb of God. So thus we close out here with the foretaste of where we see this coming from. In a a portion of this from the Isaiah 53 prophecy, starting in verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So thus we come back around full circle to where we were beginning there up on the mountain with Moshe interceding for the people who had done just an absolute travesty against the one who delivered them out of the house of bondage. Yet this intercessor said, hey, blot me out of the book. The ultimate intercessor, he was blotted out of the book, then revived up from the dead. He took that, the certificate of debt that was against us. He took that upon him, and it pleased the Lord to crush the Mashiach for our sake, for the sending away of our sins, transgressions, and iniquities, and remembering those no more. 
Yes, hallelujah indeed. He is risen indeed. So that's where we conclude things here today. Is there any thoughts or comments as we close things out here today? All right. Yes, uh, Anne, go ahead, please. I was thinking of uh, Yeshua in his early days as a child growing up, and they would go through Passover. And um, his family would have a lamb. And, and uh, then this week I heard that each person in the family had to stab the lamb. Is that? I mean, because... Well, with the with the with the family, yes, you would you would basically they would it would be a family affair. But it's it's not uh, like there'd be one person who would actually do it just to make sure that you would be doing it quickly. Yes, yes, yeah. So, indeed, indeed, the the uh, the practice that they the practice that they had with the uh, roasting of the lamb, when they talk about that you roast it with fire, they talk about how uh, it, at least it's recorded there in the first century by some of the historians about how the, the Pesach lamb was uh, splayed out so that they would be roasted completely inside and out. So, yes, that's when, when, you, when you get that kind of an image and then you think about what that's pointing toward, wow. Uh, yes, Alex, go ahead. Uh, you think about the tribalism and everything. You know, uh, I was reading recently that prior to the second temple, there, there was no genealogy for Hebrews. You know, go up, back up to my old hometown, says uh, Abraham, and get yourself a wife there, or Solomon ma marries this woman or that. or And even, I, Elijah, was he from some other area too? So the I can't remember the Eshemite, Eshemite, maybe that was just yeah, one of the tribes within the tribes. But nonetheless, the genealogy thing is not important. Mm. We, come, we come from all over. Mm. So, yeah, and just try to leave your gods back there. Yes. You, I, I know you're like, you're like Jacob's wife. Sneak a couple in the <laughs> saddle, you know. Yes. Yeah, some, some baggage is best left behind. A lot of it actually is. Uh, yes, Daniel, go ahead, please. Um, when she was talking about um, Jesus when I was younger, it just made me think, like, since Jesus knows everything, of course, and we think he chose Judas even though he knew everything he was going to do to him. Yes. And I'm just, like, so surprised. I'm like, if I knew someone was going to do something to me and, like, they like didn't know I did it, I would definitely punish them. I definitely like if I was Jesus, I'd like be like, "Hey God, um, yeah, this guy, uh, I don't really like him that much. Can you just?" And then, yeah. <laughs> but Jesus showed so much mercy to him, even though he knew everything that he had done. And I yeah. just thought, like, that like it just shows the true picture of Jesus of how much he really cares about us. Yeah. And um, at my little youth group, we were talking about that even if. Um, I was the only person on earth, like, Jesus would still come and go through everything he went through just to save that one person. Yeah. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. Yeah, in, indeed, because you see that back in Genesis chapter 3, is that this was a picture there, that there would be the seed from the woman, from Chava, that from her seed, there would be the one that would come. And that expectation has been coming down through time from one generation to the next that there would be the seed from the woman that would come and crush the head of the adversary, the head of the serpent. So it's, it's very interesting when it talks about that the uh, Messiah came in the fullness of time. There was things that were reaching into a fullness with both the people of God and uh, the focus of the world. So it really, you know, we talk about things being the internet age and how things can get disseminated quickly. Well, in a sense that that came in 
a fullness of time for the age to spread things into the world very, very quickly. So it wouldn't be something that would be kept on one side of the world. You could have it spread to a whole lot of the world very, very quickly uh, at that particular time period. So in a sense, um, Rome became a servant of God in spite of itself. And that is, when you talk about Yehuda Shkariot, that's a sad thing, that he be, was a servant, one of the 12, in spite of himself. And Yeshua talked about that as well, that there are some people who are brought in to become disciples of the kingdom in spite of the one who teaches them and disciples them which becomes a sad testimony that we can be a servants of the kingdom and yet we ourselves may not get in because within ourselves there is the hidden darkness in there that we don't want to let the light of the kingdom of God into to reveal the dark portions of us because when we reveal the dark portions what does the kingdom of God say, I will heal and forgive, send away. We just read this in Isaiah 53. He will heal our afflictions and forgive our iniquities. Do we want to be healed? That's, that's a good question. Yes, when we think about our physical maladies, we say, of course we want to be healed. But... When we see the things that are really weighing us down with deep within us, do we actually want to get healed from those things? Yes. Amen. May it be so. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Halal.info.